This is the last one of the semester because we don't make you come on exam week, finals week. Um, figure you got enough going on. But next semester, we're actually going to go through some of the creeds. Um, if you guys are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. These were statements that the fathers of the faith made on issues that were happening in the church that they saw of the utmost importance. And the reason I want to talk about it is um, there are a lot of things in Scripture that are, I would say are uncertain. Um, there are many, let's just take creation, for example, yes? There are a lot of different views as to how God may have created the earth. There's a young earth, there's the old earth, there's the creation through evolution, and um, there are many very smart, intelligent, faithful, fundamental Bible-believing scientists that have very different views on those things. And there's a lot of infighting that often happens within a church as to who's right. Is it a young earth? Is the earth 4,500 or, what is it, 8,500 years old? Or is it 85 billion years old? And does it matter, though, if it was this day or this day? And there, so there are certain things in our faith that we can believe and hold to our beliefs very firmly, and I do. But within that, we have to understand that this thing is not of the utmost importance that we all agree. However, on the other side, there are things in our faith that are of the absolute utmost importance that we all agree. And abandoning some of those tenets of the faith means to forsake the faith itself. Those are what the creeds are built on. They were making declarations about what was absolutely essential to hold to, to remain in the faith. And those are some of the things I want to look at. Somebody's getting pulled over over there. Um, I want to look at some of those things next semester and differentiate those from some of the other issues that, um, that maybe aren't as essential that we all have to agree. And hopefully it will help us come to a unity in the faith with some people that maybe are in different denominations or, um, you know, maybe go to a liturgical service when we're used to being real free-spirited because we're charismatics or whatever. So um, that's what we're looking at doing next semester. And hopefully it will help you evaluate some of the things that you hold to, um, hopefully accurately in regard to the faith, and some of the other things that maybe there is a, a broader view where if a Christian disagrees with you on a certain issue, um, it doesn't mean that you know they're not a they're not really a Christian because they hold that the belief. So, um, so that's where we're going to go next semester. Um, this semester, I had two things that I wanted to share about, and I'm going to share on one of them, and the other one I just want to make a quick mention about. And um, it's in regard to how in the world can I and my little group of three friends that I have make a real lasting impact in the world? I feel like I have to do something really grandiose. You know, I've got to become famous and become influential to really have an impact. How can I and my little group of like two or three friends really have a, make a difference. And um, there will be an illustration that I'll use a little bit later, but I was doing some quick um, just mental calculations 
Um, if you had three friends and you each uh, picked two people to disciple for a period of years, and each year the two people that you discipled took on two people, it doesn't take long and pretty soon you've got over 20,000, over 40,000, 80,000 people involved. Have you ever done the trick with the penny? You know, would you rather have $100,000 or a penny and then it doubles every day? You ever hear? You get, nobody had math class. Okay, Bo did, um, obviously. Uh, he's the only guy who took a math class. Well, for those of you who are not mathletes, um, it's on about day, what, 14 when you start getting into six and seven figures. And your, your penny suddenly goes from, you know, being in small change to $120, $240, eighty right? And it grows boom, 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 boom every day, and pretty soon you're well over a million bucks. And so it's smarter to take a penny that doubles every day. Well, it's the same principle with discipleship. If you had three, three friends and each of you took on two people, how many people are you discipling? Six. Okay. Nobody in here likes math. <laughs> I would have guessed otherwise. Okay. So because we have a bunch of artists in the room, I'm going to draw pictures. <laughs> so if there's three of you and you each disciple two people, that's six people that you're discipling and that's nine of you all together, all of a sudden, right? And you do this for a number of years, but each year the people you're discipling add two people each. So all of a sudden those six people they each start to disciple two people. How many people are they discipling? That's 12. We're at 12 now. Good job, guys. The next year, it's 24. The next year, and suddenly, if you play the penny game, one of you guys has a calculator. And when you get back to your room, just pull out the calculator and start just go times two, times two, times two. And you'll see that over the course of 10 years, all of a sudden, you're touching because you were way up here in this initial circle of three, you're touching thousands of lives. The reason we fail to have impact is not that we don't get famous enough. It's that we're not consistent enough with a small group over the course of many years. That's what I got for you on that. So be consistent. Find a group of people to invest in, and then force them to invest in another group of people. Make it a part of your agreement to continue to spend time with them. And then stay at it for years. You may not ever influence more than that initial six, but what it does as it, as it doubles year after year after year after year, your little group of three and then six is suddenly impacting thousands of lives. It's amazing. So you don't need to get famous. You don't need to run away anywhere crazy. Just be consistent. Be faithful over the course of many years. All right, so that's my little nugget for you. On You don't need to have your name in lights to really have a significant impact. And I think most of you probably have three friends, or two friends is all you need because there was only a group of three of us at the start, right? Okay. So last week, um, I'm not sure how it came up, but I mentioned Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And... Um, that's about, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Um, so I shared that. I don't remember why exactly, because um, I don't think it was in my notes. But Jay um, sent me a text the next day that on Thursday, um, he, his devotional 
he has a devotional book, was Ephesians 2. And Friday, when he woke up, his daily reading was Ephesians 2. And Thursday, I said, did I say it was Ephesians 2? Did I say that? I thought I misspoke. So two days in a row, he gets Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and he was like, well, you know, you mentioned this last night, and sent me a text, and I was like, well, that's neat. And then uh, Pastor talked about salvation on Sunday being the core message that we should never get tired of this message, and which was awesome for me because I could probably preach that message every week for like 75 weeks in a row. I just get so excited about it. And, uh, and then two days ago, um, my devotional reading was Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so tonight I was like, you know what, we're going to end this semester and we're going to talk about what is it when we get saved? What happens? So, most of you guys just fell asleep, but don't, okay? Please don't. I had heard this message, I grew up in church, and I went to a church where the gospel got shared every week for 10 years, and I never got it. I had heard it so many times that I didn't need to hear it again, and it didn't make, it did not hit home, so please don't fall asleep. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The first thing I want to say about this is, when I started to study this again today, I was getting into this for getting some notes ready today. Every verse in the Bible is packed with life. And one of the greatest dangers of being a Christian over the course of years is that we start to read the Bible because we have to. And we stop reading it expecting that the next verse is going to change our lives. We read it to intellectually understand something and we stop looking at it as though the next phrase that I read might revolutionize my eternity, my future. And this is what I have come to discover reading the scripture is that you can be reading a passage you've read 35 times before and suddenly it's alive and something is happening in your heart, in your mind that you've never experienced before. And it's a verse that you've read a 35 times before and heard a hundred times before and suddenly it's the newest thing you've ever seen in your life and it changes everything. I re- John 3, um, I was studying John 3 and I told you guys this story a little while ago but we all know the story about Nicodemus coming to Jesus. That's where the big verse that we all know is, you know, for God so loved the world, it's in there. But in the conversation that he has with Nicodemus, Jesus tells Nicodemus, for you must be born from above. And I had read that so many times, and it didn't matter at all because you just had to be born from above. And that's what happened when you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. You just get born from above, and then you just go on with your life, and you try to be a good person now. But when I read it 
for some reason, on a specific day, God gave me eyes to see, and suddenly born from above was a literal event, and it changed everything for me. Because you, you're not born from above, like Nicodemus asked, how can a man return into his mother's womb and be born again? You can't! The only way to be born from above is to start a new life. That's salvation. Okay, so when, we, when you read your Bible and when you hear stuff that you've heard a hundred times before, shake the dullness out of your spirit and make yourself pay attention because the next verse you hear could change your eternity forever. Change your eternity forever. That doesn't need to be said that forever you can just delete. This just changes your eternity. Okay, so... Let me just start by saying that salvation is more than simply having our sins wiped away. Having our sins wiped away is immense, is it not? Some of you don't appreciate this as much as some, maybe someone like me, but having your sins just wiped away is immense. It's enormous. You could, you could weep at the feet of Jesus for an eternity just at the thought of him saying, all the things you've ever done, they're gone. You don't ever have to think about them again. I've removed them as far as the east from the west. And that's, what's, that's what is preached in most churches in our country. And it's, the, it's an incredibly powerful message. But it's a portion. It's a part of what happens in salvation. It's just a part. It's not the whole thing. It's a part. It's huge and it's amazing and it's immense. But it's a part. There is so much more to this. Okay, so we're going to set some context for Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. First, if you go back to the start of the um, chapter 2, which there weren't chapter breaks, but we're going to use them tonight because it's easy. Um, he sets some context that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were dead. We were um, dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. So he's setting the table and he's like, you're dead. We were following the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air. So he, he's like, not only were you sinful and dead, but you were not only carnal, but you were actually following the devil. Wow, I was, wasn't that bad, I mean... If you weren't following Jesus, Paul is saying you were following the devil. This is a powerful statement. He says we are carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is Paul's version of, uh, in, in Ephesians, his, his, his letter here, he, he takes um, Romans 1 through 3 three and a half, and he packs it into four sentences. And he just goes, here you go. You're sinful, you're all dead, you're following the devil, and you're children of wrath. In Romans, he stretches it out. And if you've never read through Romans, read it and milk it for all it's worth. Um, we'll get into it a little bit tonight, but... Okay, so there's the context for the build-up to Romans 2, 8, and 9. And all of a sudden, he transitions. So he's like, here's you. You're dead. 
you're carnal, you're sinful, you're nasty, and you're, you're a child of wrath because you're following the devil. There you are. And he just kind of walks away. <laughs> hey, okay, you know, thanks, Tony Robbins. Um, it doesn't feel that good. And then he goes, but God. And when he says, but God, he's, he's setting a context and he's like, here's the mess. Here's the filth. Here's the disaster. And then he just steps away. And it's like he steps up into the realm of heaven in which he's seated with Christ. And he goes, but God. He's rich in mercy. With the great love with which he loved us. Even though, here's you over here and you're dead in your sin. Even though you're following the devil, here is God who's rich in love, he's rich in mercy, he made you alive in Christ. And then he says, by grace you've been saved. When he, when he pauses to say, by grace you've been saved, he's saying that God's making you alive, he's defining grace as the power by which God made you alive. So remember that when we get to 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved. By God's power, he made you alive in Christ. And now you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Why? He answers it in the next verse. So that God can show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Come on. So here's the context. Here's me wallowing in my filth. My sin, enjoying it, reveling in it, following the devil. God, who owes me wrath, rightfully should punish me. In his love, he abounds in mercy and decides instead to give me life. Seat me with Christ in Christ, why? So that he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward me. Come on. So I want to go through this step by step and do something that might seem really redundant. But like I said, I'd heard this message a hundred times and I never understood it. And so I want to walk through what actually happens in salvation and how does it happen. We were dead. We weren't sick, we weren't troubled, we weren't messed up, we weren't just sinful. We were dead. Dead. Dead means you have no life. I know that's really self-explanatory. But seriously, stop for a second. Have you ever considered yourself 
pre-Jesus as literally dead. The wages of sin is death, and we were born in sin. Therefore, we were dead. Okay, so how were we born into sin? Did you, has anyone asked this question and not had an answer? Okay, so we're going to ask that question. How were we born in sin? Anybody? And you can feel free to ask a question, interject a question, or if you want to shout out an answer, you know, don't hold back. Just fire it out here. Yeah, maybe not you. You've heard this about 40 times. Romans 5.12 states that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Makes sense, right? What did he say? Okay. So, we know that Adam is the one who brought sin into the world, right? Anna is Adam. Okay, this is in the first couple chapters of the Bible. This is in the Old Testament. Um, and since he was the first man, pre-children, each one of his children and children's children inherited his sin. Therefore, we were all dead and all born into it. Adam's spirit had died, and therefore all who would come out of him would have a dead spirit as well. So, right here, I want to stop for a minute. I want to look at family and genealogy and how important it is in the Scripture. It's enormous. It's throughout the whole Bible. If you cruise through Scripture and you don't look at the genealogies, why else would... Have you guys read the Old Testament? Okay, three of you read the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, seriously, you should read the Old Testament. <laughs> Good Lord. It's got great stories in there, but there are names of people. Like, if you read the King James, it's so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's a begat, begat, begat. Just don't read the King James Old Testament. Read a different one. I'm, nothing against King James. I'm just kidding. But if you know what begat means, you could tell me because I don't. But if you did a different translation, it's son of who and son of who, and this was his son and son and son. I just uh, finished Genesis. I spent a lot of weeks in Genesis, more than I probably should have, but it's all lineages. Okay, why would they waste paper? I mean, I know it wasn't green back then, but why would they waste so much paper writing out all these names if genealogies and families don't matter? There's a whole other message on family, but we're going to look at it right now as it applies to salvation. Okay, so the best way to illustrate the importance of genealogy is this. Um, what if your grandfather had been run over by a renegade boar on the pig farm when he was four? <laughs> Just came up with it. Would you be here? Grandpappy ain't got no kids when he's four. He got run over on the pig farm. None of us are here. Interesting side note. This is why biblically when an enemy of God wanted to eliminate what God was doing in the earth, they began legislating forced abortions. And I'll show you why here in a second. And it happened throughout history multiple times. Because the death of a child eliminates an entire family from the earth forever. So my family is a really easy illustration. My grandfather had seven kids. And each of those kids had three to six. 
children. We were one of the smallest families. We only had three kids. Um, my grandfather had seven kids, and those seven kids had 29 children. So my grandfather had 29 grandchildren. Um, and now I tried to do a total today, and there's, there's about 50 great-grandkids my grandfather would have if he's alive. That's 86 people that would not exist today had my grandfather died in a pig attack at age four. But instead, we have this huge family, and many of us look alike, and we have similar mannerisms, uh, you know, noses, ears, all that. We share the family traits. So this is really important biblically because the family line was really important, and it'll come into play here in a little bit. But for right now, when we look at Adam, we have to understand that we inherited the family trait that's a dead spirit. Adam died when he sinned. He, obeyed the com- he disobeyed the command of God and died. So that every one of his kids that would come after him inherited that death. So when we were born, having never chosen to disobey God of our own accord, we were dead. We then gladly went along with it, uh, for the most part. Um, but we were dead, and that's how we inherited our death, so that we were born into sin. So, some of you maybe grew up in a Christian home, and that's great. Um, maybe you spent fewer years uh, sinning you know, than, than other people did. But it doesn't matter. We were all dead. And in our sin, Paul says, but God. But God was rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive in Christ. And this is a really important phrase, in Christ. Again, it's so easy to read a verse and just, boom, you just buzz through it. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, he made us alive in Christ. What does it mean? What do you, what do you mean, in Christ? What does, he, what does he mean, in Christ? That's just a phrase, right? It's like Jesus Christ is basically his last name, right? I mean, no, it's, it's a title. It's a declaration. Well, in Christ isn't just like, oh yeah, you're in Christ, like you're, you know, the in crowd. It's in Christ means something. So just keep that in mind. We'll get there in a second. By grace you have been saved. Grace is the power by which he made you alive. Verse 8. Through faith. What's faith? Hebrews says, faith is the certainty of that which we do not see. Certainty. So, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So, it is by the power of God that you have been made alive in Christ by the certainty of that which you do not see. That's how salvation happens. Where does that faith come from? Where does that certainty come from? Verse 9. Verse 9 says, It is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. The gift of God is the certainty of that which you do not see, which allows you to experience the power of God to take you from death and bring you into life. Okay, okay, how does that happen? First, let me say, miraculously. This is why our evangelism techniques don't have to be so intellectual. Because it is a gift of God that gives someone faith and suddenly they see and they experience the grace of God, which is the power to take them from death and into life, even though they don't understand it. That's why simpletons experience salvation. But there's also an incredible complexity to the gospel because a person like Paul who was an intellectual giant, was so fascinated with the inner workings of how God actually brought this about that it it was something that fascinated him for his whole life. Come on. Can you imagine? You're an intelligent group of people. Being utterly fascinated by the gospel every single day? Most of us are like, I'm pretty sure I got this down pat, you know, the whole forgiveness of sins thing, and I'm not sure why he's getting so excited about this. That's what really struck me, was I knew Paul, I'd read this biography on Paul, and I, this guy was a legal scholar and genius, and I'm reading his writings, and he's talking about the Bible, and he's so fascinated with the gospel that he can't get over it. And I'm like, should I really be bored with it? Probably not. And it it was tremendously convicting for me, but I'm getting off course. So let's get back. So how did this come about? It's a miracle. God gives faith, and you suddenly have the certainty that through Jesus, you have received new life. You were dead, you're now alive, and you just know it, and that's it. However, Scripture tells us how he accomplished it. It wasn't a magic trick that God suddenly just was like, man, these guys are really blowing it. Okay, you guys remember the 80s commercial, the clapper? (laughs) Boom, salvation. This was his plan. (laughs) Not that one. (laughs) This was his plan From before creation, from before the foundations of the earth, Christ was crucified. So this was God's plan, his strategy, from before before the time in which he created man. So it wasn't like he had this plan of hopefully everything is going to go good in the garden, it falls apart, and then one day he's just like, dang, i got to figure out how to get these guys back. Poof, salvation, now if they believe, they can come to heaven, woo! He wasn't doing that. The whole thing strategically is interwoven through the scripture, and it's amazing. And we could spend months on it, and that's what Paul was talking about, was I could look at this story of God's salvation in Christ throughout scripture every day, and it's fascinating to me. So how did God make us alive? Let's just look at Romans 5 and 6 just for a little bit here. Because I love them. 
All right. So verse 15. So he says, but the gift of salvation is not like the trespass. It's not like the sin. For if the many died by the sins of the one man, Adam, right? You guys know what we're talking about? Okay. We're talking about Adam and Jesus, and he's, he's contrasting them, and he's saying that Adam produced death throughout all humanity, right? It was because of this bozo that the rest of us were born in sin. But he goes, but the gift isn't like the trespass. For if, the, if, by, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So he's like, listen, if Adam could mess it up that big, Jesus could fix it bigger. So how can Jesus redeem the race of humanity? Because that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about genealogies. And he's like, our great-great-granddad wrecked it all for us because of his sin, and then we inherited it all. So how can Jesus redeem the entire line of Adam? He was God. This is why Jesus had to become a man. And this was why he had to be born into the family into which he was born. In Luke 3, we see that Jesus' lineage is traced all the way back to Adam. They didn't just list that for funsies. It meant something. It meant that Jesus had the right to step into the line of Adam and whatever he did in his life changed that family's position throughout history. In the law, God talks about when a, when a, a, a man sins, that his kids will be punished to the fourth generation, but when a man is righteous, he'll be rewarded to a thousand generations. God stuck Jesus into Adam's line so that he could redeem the entire lineage of Adam back to day one and throughout all eternity. He had to because that was the only way that Jesus could affect the race of humanity. And we see that Jesus was of the line of Adam and because of that, he's able to redeem the entire line. In addition, in the law, it required a sinless lamb to take the entire punishment of the people upon himself and in his death to atone for the sin of that people. We know that, right? Yeah. Jesus did that as well. So in Jesus' death, God became both just and justifier of those who believe, Romans 5 says. He's just because he punishes sin. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to die. Blood must be shed. And it's ours, initially. For our sin and being born into sin, it's our blood that must be shed. Jesus comes into our line and into our place, and he dies, thereby shedding the blood that's required to satisfy the punishment of sin, making God just. But Romans 5 also says that he's justifier of those who would believe. 
So for everybody who believes, he justifies them, meaning makes them in right standing with God. How could Jesus' death 2,000 years ago affect us? How does it affect us? Because we are down the line from him, but he didn't have any kids. I can't trace my family lineage back to Jesus. Right? Not the way that they traced it back to Adam. So how does his death actually affect me? 1 Corinthians 15 says that the first Adam was a natural being. And the natural comes before the spiritual. But the second Adam is a life-giving spirit. So it's not natural children that are Jesus' heirs, but rather spiritual children that are Jesus' heirs. Okay, so this we're gonna we're gonna so now you see the transition. Jesus redeems the natural line of Adam, but from that point on, it's now spiritual children that become his by the new birth that comes in salvation. Okay, so we are Jesus' spiritual heirs, correct? We're not as natural, he didn't have kids. So how does this happen? It's from one of the most common salvation phrases you'll ever hear. It's the one you heard when you were baptized. How do you usually get baptized? This doesn't go for every denomination, but how are you usually baptized? What does the guy say who's holding you underwater? Take a deep breath. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, right? What does that mean? Nothing, right? It's just a phrase. Why did Jesus then command the disciples in the Great Commission, go out, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why? He just needed a catchphrase. He's branding. Jesus was branding. We pray in the name of Jesus, right? It's just our Christian brand. We just like, in the name of Jesus. We were baptized into the name of Jesus. What does that mean? The name is who you are. It's your family. When a woman gets married, she takes her husband's name And she becomes a part of his family. She's now a part of his family and they are continuing down the line of his lineage. When you take his name, you become a part of his line. You're now his child, his heir. You get the family package. This is why lineage and genealogy is so huge in the scripture. And it's also why when we look at the heroes of the faith that are listed in Hebrews 11 and throughout the Old Testament, those are our family members. That's my heritage. If, I, if my family's messed up naturally and they're a bunch of drunks and they're a bunch of losers, that's not my family anymore. This is my line. This is my family. This is, I'm the legacy that comes from Paul. That's who we are. We
we were baptized into the name. Okay, so when you're baptized into the name of Jesus, you're baptized into him, literally. God is placing you into Jesus, into him. He's like, yes, I did. Thanks, Jared. That was perfect timing. Um, You're being baptized into him. You are being placed into the person of Jesus. So if, remember the the illustration about my great-grandpappy? If he dies on the pig farm at four, none of us are here. Why? Why? Does anybody know why? Cody, my grandpappy dies at four on the pig farm. Why am I not here? <laughs> right, he didn't have a wife, which then leads to children, right? So <clears throat> his children couldn't have gotten here if he didn't have children, right? So that means that his children were actually in him when he was four, yes? Yeah, okay, we're going we're gonna to go into health class here for a second. You guys, okay? You guys okay with this? Okay, Shar gave me the okay. All right. The seed. It's the seed. That's why the Bible talks about the seed. Because it's very important because God looks at the seed of man as actual children, as lives. Catholic Church has laid hold of this. They understand it. That's why they have the position that they do on contraception and on life beginning at conception because they understand that God views the seed of man as a child, as a life. So does God. My grandpa was four years old and I was in him as seed. So when we were baptized into Jesus, we, we were in him as seed when he was hanging on a cross. God put us into him as his spiritual children that would be born at a later time, but we were seed in him. Just like God talked about Abraham's seed being Jesus and David's son. Jesus is called David's son. That was so many grandkids away that most of us, we can't even imagine. Imagine getting a promise about your son and the fulfillment of it is 14 generations later. Most of us would... We wouldn't even care. We'd take the position of Hezekiah. I don't give a rip as long as it's not in my generation. Doesn't matter. David gets a promise about his seed that would come 14 generations later. That's how God sees things. So when he baptizes us into Christ and we enter into Jesus, we are his seed that will be born at a time that he's chosen, but we are in him when he's walking on the earth. That is a powerful, powerful thought. And it's a reality in the scripture. How do I know that? Because Romans 6, I think it's verse 2 through 4, says that you were crucified with Christ Jesus. This is not a figurative anomaly. This is not some ethereal concept. 
This is a literal happening. You were baptized. You were crucified with Christ because you were in him as seed. And he says, therefore, the death he died, you died with him. So this is what's happening. This is how this is all happening. God sees us over here. We're wallowing in our sin. We're dead, right? He gives us faith, a gift. Boom! Now we believe that Jesus is the answer. We believe, we've got faith. We believe that Jesus is the answer. Now this is what's actually happening in the spiritual realm. We are pulled out of our death and we're placed into Christ where we are crucified with him and buried with him in death. That dead person dies utterly in punishment with Jesus when Jesus paid the punishment of sin or it was, it was satisfied in him. We were in him and died that eternal death with him. Dead, gone. You're no more. Powerful. Think about this for a second. Everything I was and did before I knew Jesus is dead. It's gone. I don't have to be ashamed of that anymore. I don't have to feel bad about that anymore. I don't even have to remember that anymore. Utterly dead, punished, crucified with Christ. Then he goes on to say, but we believe that if we were crucified with Christ, we will also be raised with Christ. In the new life which he now lives, we will also live. So everything we were before Jesus is dead, crucified, it's gone. Now, when we are baptized and we come up, That is our resurrection with Jesus. We were seed in him when he came out of the grave. And in faith, we receive that resurrection with him the moment we believe. That's what grace is literally doing in the spirit is it's giving you new life. And it's a transaction that happened because Jesus came out of the tomb and you were seed in him that came out of the tomb with him. So you are given completely new life. This is, listen, this is so important because the modern gospel of wiping away of sins, it says that you're a big blackboard like that wall and there's a lot of nasty writing on you and there's graffiti and it's gross and that's your sin and it's so yucky and look at it, it's red and it's scarlet. But then Jesus comes along and he's a bucket of bleach and he goes, whoosh, clean, hooray, now you're just a blackboard again. And nothing about you changes except the yucky that you got covered in. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is the blackboard gets ripped down. It gets lit on fire. It gets destroyed. It's utterly destroyed. The blackboard doesn't exist anymore. But what's suddenly created is a brand new life that has never before been. And it's a life in Christ that's seated in heavenly places with God. This is so important because what usually happens when we come into Christianity, we start to define our Christian life by some of the things that we used to like and we used to be and we used to be a part of and what our personality was before we met Jesus. And that is all gone. 
We're a totally new creation. And the only way we can find out what we're really like is by asking the creator who made us new. Because we are brand new. We're infants. We're starting over, born from above. But this time, we have the nature of God in us. We are partakers in the divine nature. We are his kids. We get his story. We have his spirit. We have his life, his love, his character, his emotion in us. And what happens is our minds, because we have the same mind that was here and destroyed from the old man that died with Christ, that mind needs to be renewed to think and understand and grow into the mind of Christ, like Paul said the apostles had. The mind requires renewal, even though the Spirit already got it. The Spirit is born anew. You're not the same that you used to be, but now your mind is being renewed and it's catching up. How does it catch up? How does your mind get renewed? Through the washing of water in the Word. The Word of God in your mind over and over and over, chewing on it. Who am I, God? What do I look like, God? What is it like to be seated in heavenly places, God? Renew my mind. I've actually had the Lord do some really weird things with me in regard to the death of the old man. And I was telling a friend about this over the weekend. The Lord's actually walked me through a lot of those memories of things that I did that I was ashamed of when I was living in rebellion. And he walked me through them as I would have responded now as a new man in Christ. And as some of the most powerful experiences I've had... You could say they're not real. Whatever. He changed the way that I think about who that I am, because, who I am, because he showed me how I would have acted had I been then who I am now. Because we're not one and the same. We're two different people. That that man is dead. He's gone. This is a different man that you are now in Christ. It is, to be born from above is literally a new life being created, a new child. It's not the wiping of an old chalkboard to give a clean start. It is the, the birth of a new life. This is also really interesting about the mind. We often remember things, like I was saying, I have these old memories of things that I'd done, and God walked me through and changed my memories he renewed my mind in regard to those things. But what's interesting about his perspective, Scripture says that he remembers our sin no more. In his mind, when we died with Christ, those things had never happened. That's what I mean by the utter destruction of a life when you are crucified with Christ. All the things that you once were, is, they're gone, utterly destroyed, and God doesn't even remember them. It is a new life that he gives you birth. And now you are one of his children. You are an heir of Christ. You are seated in heavenly places. You are a son, a daughter of God. You have his nature. You are not 
even close to what you used to be. Well, like I said, we could spend weeks going through a lot of this stuff. First Corinthians um, 15 has some amazingly powerful stuff about the first and second Adam. Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Amazing. We, we could spend months and months going through this stuff. And every single time it's exciting and there's something new in it. What I want you to understand heading out of this semester is that your birth in God, in salvation. Remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about the Holy Spirit. This is what it is. When you receive the Holy Spirit, it is your new birth in God. And when new birth happens, you are a new and different person. People may recognize that, some may not. And I'm telling you this because you're about to probably go home for the holidays. And if things have been changing about you, the time that most of us revert back to the way that we used to be because of our unrenewed minds is when we're around family, is when we're around those that have known us forever and we just go back into the same old patterns. I had to step away from my family for a period of about five or six years my extended family, because every time I was around them, I began to be a dead man again. I was breathing life into a carcass because my brain hadn't renewed the way that I was supposed to think, and I started to think in old patterns again. And I had to step away from that for a period so I could learn to think rightly so that now when I'm around them, I'm a different man. I have new thought patterns And I don't become that dead man again. When you go home on this break, don't let yourself go back and try to resuscitate something you're not anymore. Do everything you can to demonstrate to those who have known you the longest that you are not what you used to be. Not for their sake, for your sake. It's not for them that needs it. They'll get it eventually. It's for you. You need it. You need to find out that you are not what your family has always defined you as. You are defined by your father and your father only, and you will live by what he says about you and what he says about you only. And so that's why I wanted to share this with you before you headed home. Understanding that we are now being removed from a family line that used to be and placed into a family of God, into his line as his heirs, it changes the way that we live, changes the way that we function around our natural family. It has to. So, as you go home, pray that God would give you the ability, the grace, to walk out who you are now that you've been born from above and things have changed about you, don't hide them. Um, I find personally that once you hide something the first time, it becomes easier and easier and easier to hide it going forward. And just to, well, 
they don't they don't need to know that or um, be the same person with your family that you are when you're in a small group or you're confiding in a friend about the things that God's doing in your heart. Um, you need to do that for you at this point. It'll benefit your family, but it's primarily for you and your own freedom and beginning to become established as a new life in Christ. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a very Merry Christmas. Lord, thank you for your word again. God, we marvel at the mystery that is the good news. Father, we, we acknowledge that we do not understand even a morsel of what this salvation is about. But, Lord, we want to know all of it. We want to experience all of it. Father, we don't want to settle for yesterday's bread or an old message. We want the real thing and the whole thing. Father, open our eyes and our minds to understand that what you've done in this miracle of salvation is so enormous that it requires a miracle for us to grasp it, to experience it, Lord. But we want it all. So, Father, as we go into break and and we head home and we're spending time around family, give us the courage to live out this new life that you've given us as we've been born from above. Give us strength to crawl and when we fall to get up and keep moving forward. To know that we're your children and you're always with us. We love you, Lord. Amen.